You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, as we come to the seventh commandment, it's worth taking a moment to remind ourselves of what we've heard from God thus far. We, uh, when we've started the series, we noted that um, theologians often divide the Ten Commandments into the first table and the second table. Okay, here's the first table. And I'm going to say them positively and then negatively all the way through. Commandment one, worship Yahweh alone. You shall have no other gods before me. Number two, worship Yahweh in the way he requires. You shall not make a graven image. Number three, you shall honor the name of Yahweh in your words and your conduct. You shall not take Yahweh's name in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath. You shall not ceaselessly labor or make others ceaselessly labor. And that first table of the law is fundamentally oriented toward love for God. And then it gives way with a kind of hinge in the fifth commandment. It's what Pastor David called the fifth commandment, a hinge that leads us from loving God as our father to loving and honoring our earthly fathers and our mothers and all other relationships of superiors and inferiors, which gives way then to love for neighbor. The six commandments of the second table are primarily about how we love our neighbor. And that fifth commandment contains a promise, so that your days may be long in the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you, which is a promise particularly to Israel. But it's a promise that Paul picks up in Ephesians chapter 6 and says that this is the first commandment with a promise and applies it more broadly to the church. And there are debates about what Paul means by the first commandment with a promise. But at least one possibility is that the promise of the fifth commandment, long life in the land, governs the rest of the ten words. It's the first commandment, the leading commandment with the promise of long life in the land, but the remaining commandments are also designed to preserve long life in the land. Or put another way, I think this is true, um, all of the commandments, especially that second table, in one way or another are designed to preserve and guard human community and society. Like, Like the integrity of all human community is at stake in keeping the law of God as summarized in the Ten Commandments. It depends upon honoring relationships of authority and submission, on preserving the glorious and wonderful mystery of human life, as Pastor Jonathan preached last week, on preserving the fundamental covenant of marriage, on guarding the right to own one's property, on preserving the social bonds that we establish through speech and speaking the truth, and on fostering a contentment in what God has given to us so that our insatiable desires do not threaten to tear society apart. These 10 words, especially this second table, are designed to preserve the bonds of community. So that's a a recap and yet also a preview of what we're going to continue to talk about over the next few weeks. So when we come to the seventh commandment, very simply, you shall not commit adultery or to state it positively, respect and protect and honor marriage. So what I want to do is I want to begin with the definition, and then I want to talk a little bit about the purposes uh, of marriage, why marriage is so fundamental, and then at the end turn to some practical issues 
that confront us as we work out from the core of the commandment to these broader areas that it speaks to. So number one, what is marriage? Here's a simple definition. It's a careful definition. I don't think it's original to me. I found it in a sermon that I preached a couple years ago, but I don't think I got it. I didn't make it up. Um, this, this language of it. So marriage is a comprehensive, exclusive, lifelong union of two sexually complementary persons who seal their relationship through a procreative act. It's a little bit of a technical definition, but just break it down. It's a comprehensive union, meaning husband and wife are united, body and soul, a one flesh union. It's an exclusive union. Husband and wife have unique and mutual obligations to each other in a monogamous relationship. It's a lifelong union of complementary persons in that only a man and only a woman can unite together, and that union is designed by God to bring forth children. Now, in this definition, we can also hear sort of two fundamental and original purposes for marriage. Two fundamental purposes. Number one, marriage is given for the mutual joy, help, and comfort of husband and wife. This is what we do when we do our wedding ceremonies. That's why we join them together through in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, through all the ups and downs of human life. Marriage is given as a gift for the mutual joy, help, and comfort of husband and wife. That's why in Genesis chapter 2, God says, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. The creation of woman and the union of the man and the woman as husband and wife is for the sake of their joy in this suitable and fitting relationship. So that's the first fundamental and original purpose of marriage. But second, God designed marriage to issue forth in fruitfulness, in multiplication, and in filling the earth with his image bearers. And not just image bearers in general, but more specifically, image bearers who follow him. And in this era, who follow the risen Jesus. Pastor Kevin reminded me, as I was preparing for my sermon, of a good line from John Piper on this. Marriage is for making children disciples of Jesus. And both of those are important. There's a natural dimension to that purpose, and there is a supernatural dimension to that purpose. God has given the gift of marriage to us because he desires godly offspring. Not just offspring, not just people, but godly people, children who are raised in the discipline and nurture of the Lord. Which means that children are not an accessory to a romantic relationship but instead one of the fundamental and original purposes for the marriage relationship. And this is true, even though we live in a fallen and broken world marked by medical complications that hinder and prevent that fruitfulness. And I just want to underscore this for a minute. Okay. We live in a broken world in which infertility is real. It's real. And in almost all cases, probably all cases, it's unbelievably painful. And sometimes in our good desire to comfort those who feel the weight 
of infertility, we can be tempted to modify the biblical vision of marriage and its purposes. Okay? In other words, this is what we, what we do. It's a good desire to do this. In order to relieve the burden that the barren woman feels or the couple feels, we can turn procreation into an optional add-on, icing on the cake in our descriptions of marriage. There are two problems with that attempt to comfort. Well-intentioned attempts to comfort. Number one, it's not the biblical vision of marriage. The scriptures give ample testimony that fruitfulness and multiplication are God's design for marriage. That's one of the main reasons he instituted it. And we can't, it's never wise to deny God's design. Second, that's not the biblical way to comfort. The biblical way of comfort is to enter the pain by dignifying the loss. Because infertility is a real loss. It's a deep pain. And it's a deep pain because God's design is that marriage issue forth in children. If if childbearing were simply an optional accessory to marriage, then the pain wouldn't be as deep. It hurts as much as it's worth. And by God's design, it's worth a lot. So grieving with a couple who is unable to bear children requires us, it demands of us that we acknowledge the real good that is broken here. We have a Bible that both lifts up fruitfulness as one of the main purposes of marriage and then repeatedly invites us in to consider again and again the pain and brokenness of barrenness and infertility. That's the Bible you have. And so we want to do both. Okay. So God designed marriage for mutual joy, help, and comfort. And God designed marriage to issue forth in children who will be raised in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So bringing these two together, marriage is God's way of multiplying and establishing new households. This is tying it to the fifth commandment. Every human being is born into a household. All of us have a father and a mother and by nature an obligation to honor that father and that mother. But then, having been raised in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, God's intent is that a man would grow and leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And in leaving and cleaving would establish a new household, a new outpost of God's natural and supernatural love and grace to us. That's the purposes of marriage. So then, question. Why do we guard and protect it? Why, if marriage is this comprehensive, exclusive, lifelong union of a man and a woman designed to bring forth children and to be a source of mutual joy, help, and comfort, why is it so important to protect and respect and honor it? This is what the Bible says in the book of Hebrews. Let marriage be held in honor by all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Why? Why is that so important for marriage to be respected and honored? And there's a lot of different answers we could give to this question. We could really talk about how important it is for children to have a mom and a dad. 
That's something the Bible testifies to. It's something that our common sense testifies to. And it's something that in the modern age, our social science, as we try to measure and quantify, increasingly testifies to. But I want to go a little bit of a different direction. I was kind of inspired last week as I was listening to Pastor Jonathan talk about the mystery of life and the glory, why is life is so precious and why respecting and protecting and guarding life is so important. Marriage, like life, is a great mystery. The book of Proverbs says that the way of a man with a woman is one of the incomprehensible mysteries of life. One of those things that's too lofty for him. In the modern world, it's easy to view marriage as this kind of individualistic and private arrangement. It's about two people, merely about two people who love and desire each other, and they enter enter some kind of agreement that suits them, and it can be dissolved when it suits them. That's a modern way of thinking about marriage. But marriage is so much bigger than this. It's the oldest human institution. Its roots reach back to the garden. And a chief part of the glory of marriage is that it is capable at its best of conjuring Eden for us. Awakening in our imaginations of recalling the deep memory of what was lost and ruined by the fall. In this sense, we don't, we're not guarding marriage because it's inherently fragile. We guard it because it's so deeply precious. It's marriage is this thing that harnesses powerful desires that are capable of tearing human society apart. The, the desires are so potent and so powerful that we have to bind them with covenants and oaths before Almighty God and these witnesses and seek to channel them in fruitful directions that build families and households and societies and civilizations. It's marriage is the foundation and the seedbed of all human civilization. And so we bind it with oaths to protect it. And when we're talking about these desires that marriage harnesses and channels, I'm not mainly talking or only talking about the marital act itself. We're talking about the the whole complex web of desires and aspirations and hopes and dreams that make us who we are as men and women. Like in, in marriage, we come face to face with realities of such weight and significance that in our best moments, we are humbled into silence before them. The poets help us. This is what the poets do. We become appropriately shy and quiet in the presence of what it means to be man and woman, husband and wife, lover and beloved, pursuer and pursued. By God's design, marriage is one of the fundamental places that we come face to face with who we are. A man in pursuing his wife in desiring and delighting in her beauty and gladly sacrificing and giving himself for her finds not only her, but himself. Like in seeking her, he finds himself too. And a woman in being pursued and responding to her husband's initiative and desiring the enjoyment of her beauty in gladly submitting to his headship finds not only him, but herself. And then the two of them set out together to find more of themselves in each other and then in the children that God brings, if God brings, and then in the life that they build together in relation to others. Marriage is this thing that displays the glorious complementarity of the sexes. It's a dance with the husband leading 
wife responding, but all eyes marking her as they make their way around the dance floor. It's a home. The husband is the walls and roof that protect and preserve, and the wife is the warmth and beauty that brings life inside. It's a garden. Husband is gardener who tills the ground and sows the seed, and wife is the fruitful land which brings forth an abundance of life and beauty in the world. In marriage, he is head, she is glory. He is king, she is queen, and all of it is from God. It's a great mystery. It's a great and precious gift, and therefore God has woven it together with bonds and oaths, with covenants and symbols. He's built high walls around this garden, but those walls are not meant to hinder joy. They're meant to make joy possible for the good of husbands and wives, for the good of children, for the good of society and long life in the land. God has given us the gift of these high walls around marriage. And that's the reason why in the seventh commandment, God says, do not commit adultery. And it's why the penalty for adultery and for similar sins in the Mosaic law is death. We, modern people feel like that's overkill. Like we, we, like I think for many of us, we feel like when it comes to the sixth commandment, right? If you shed blood, your blood's going to be shed. We go, that makes sense. And then when we see God say, if a man takes a, a woman who's not his wife and makes her his wife, also death for both of them. We say, whoa, that really, God? Isn't that overkill? It's not overkill. God is showing us in that punishment the gravity of these sins and the weighty reality that his law protects. They are not small things because marriage is not a small thing. And if we take violations of the marriage bed lightly, then we will suffer, our children will suffer, society will suffer. And if you need evidence of that, just look around. We live in a day in which marriage is not held in honor by all. The walls are crumbling. There are weeds in the garden that choke out the life. So one of the chief parts of my message today is simply to call this people here to hear and obey the seventh commandment. Like there are a thousand ways to break it. There are a thousand ways in which you can dishonor marriage and defile the marriage bed. And some of you, if you're honest, are dancing at the edge of that right now. Dancing at the edge of dishonoring marriage and defiling the marriage bed. You're drifting toward disobedience. You're making provision for the flesh. You're creating space so that you can indulge desires. And if that's you, I just want to warn you, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So flee, like run away, run away. Humble yourself before God, resist the siren song of this world, and remember that this word from your father is a good word. Build the walls around your marriage high and thick. Help your neighbors to build the walls around their marriages high and thick, and then rejoice in the kindness and the blessing of God. That's the heart of the message. Now, I want to say something practical in a minute. 
But before I do, um, there's one other major question I want to address. Because here I have been extolling the glory and goodness of marriage. And I know in this congregation, there are a lot of folks who are not married. And so is there a word in the seventh commandment? Is there a word here for you? Because Hebrews says, the book of Hebrews, I said, the marriage should be held in honor by all. Not just by the married. By all. So I've got three things to consider. If you're unmarried, what does, how do you hold the marriage How do you hold marriage in honor? Number one, by nature, every man is a potential husband and father, and every woman is a potential wife and mother. That's part of what it means to be made male and female. It's a deep fundamental level. Potential husband and father, potential wife and mother. But that word potential is really important. Because beneath the potential is the actual. And here's the actual. Beneath the potential is the simple fact that every man is an actual son and every woman is an actual daughter. And more importantly, every Christian man is an actual son of God and every Christian woman is an actual daughter of God. Which means that before I am Jenny's husband... I am God's son. I'm his creation by nature, and I'm his son through Christ. And that actual relationship to God is more fundamental than all other human relationships. Because that relationship, son of God, is an everlasting relationship. Jesus teaches us that marriage, for all of its glories in this life, is only an institution for this present age. In the age to come, we neither marry nor are given in marriage. The temporary glory of marriage gives way to the eternal glory of fellowship with God and with his people. So it's important as we extol the goodness of marriage for us and for children and for society and we lift it up, we remember that underneath that potential to be a husband or potential to be a wife is something real, deep, and actual that can be true of anyone. It is true of you because you were made by God and it can be true of you if you trust in Jesus. You can be an actual son or daughter and that's fundamental. That's the first thing. Second thing. Nevertheless, In this present age, marriage is and ought to be normative for us. Meaning, God's design for most is marriage. God's design for most is marriage. So having established that our relationship to him is most fundamental, we ought to embrace the goodness of marriage as the normal path for most. And in the shadow of the fall, we even see here a third purpose. Those two purposes I mentioned earlier were original. They were true in the garden. This third one is true outside of the garden. In a fallen world, marred by sin and subject to temptation, marriage is a protection from immorality. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 7, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. That's the second thing. So number one, fundamental relationship, you are a son or a daughter of God. Number two, marriage, however, is normative for most, which means number three, if marriage is the norm, 
then the unmarried state is exceptional. But exceptional does not mean second class. So it's exceptional. It's not the norm. But it doesn't mean inferior or second best. Because this is what the Bible presents us with as well. Marriage is honorable and the norm for most. And God has good purposes for those who aren't married. And even here, though, I think it's wise to distinguish. I want to make a distinction here. On the one hand, we should recognize that unmarried celibacy could be a positive divine calling for some. Okay, Paul himself, Paul places himself in that category in 1 Corinthians 7 and says the unmarried state allows for an undivided devotion to the Lord and he says he wishes more people could have it. Okay, so in other words, for some, there is a positive calling to a celibate life and they should embrace it like Paul did. On the other hand, for others, and I suspect there are many of you in this category here, singleness is a hardship. It's a source of pain and a source of longing. Like the pain of infertility, it's important to acknowledge the good thing that's desired so that we can put the pain in the proper place. Like for some of you, singleness is a painful burden. And so the reason it's important to distinguish is because if all I said was that, hey, it's this high calling like Paul, and you're going, yeah, but I have these desires. Are those desires wrong? No, they're not. They're not wrong. They're good desires. And the fact that they're not being fulfilled now is painful, and it's okay for it to be painful. It's good that it be painful. It's hard because you want to be married and you're not, and it hurts. And I just want you to hear from me and from us as pastors, it's okay that it hurts. God still has purposes in that pain. Okay. Those are the three things for the unmarried. Last thing here then. I want to try to bring the vision of marriage, vision of singleness down to earth, and there's a ton that could be said. So when we look, for example, uh, we've been doing this last few messages, looking at the Westminster Larger Catechism for guidance in terms of what's, what's really included under the, you know, there's the, the heart of it, don't murder, don't commit adultery, and then we make that positive, honor and respect life, re, uh, respect and protect marriage, and then we work out from there and say there's a bunch of other things under this umbrella. What's under the umbrella of the seventh commandment? We find all sorts of relevant expectations here. Here's the, some of the things that are listed there. Chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior. Watchfulness over the eyes and the other senses. Keeping of chaste company, who, you, who you're friends with. Modesty in apparel. There's an encouragement to conjugal love for those who are married. Also, there's a list of other adultery-like sins. In, so the... There's a list of adultery-like sins. And then additionally, on top of that, avoiding wanton looks. In other words, inappropriate flirtation or seduction. Undue delay of marriage. There are reasons to, to delay marriage that are undue, that are not wise, that are inappropriate. Unjust divorce. Lewd and lascivious songs, books, pictures, stage plays, and other provocations to uncleanness. That's what's under the bigger umbrella. Now, all of those sins are essentially on-ramps to dishonoring the marriage bed. That's what they are. That's why they're included here. 
Like Jesus, the authors of the catechism knew that adultery starts in the heart before it ever arrives in our actions. And so we need to cut off our hand and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. But here's the thing. When it comes to actually guarding against these wider sins, we really need a lot of practical wisdom. There's a lot of practical wisdom. And sermons can help, and they can particularly help by raising these issues. And so put these issues out there at the, at the macro level. Sermons can't help to do that. The real wisdom is probably going to come from thick and ideally intergenerational relationships. That's where the real wisdom and protection and addressing is going to happen. Here's what I mean. Okay, so just take, here's, for example, one of those things. Modesty and immodesty in apparel. It's an important subject. How many of you want me to preach a sermon trying to define it right now? You don't. You don't. I don't. Okay? The best place to address the particulars of that, I want to say it's an issue. I want to be able to say up here, modesty matters. It matters to God. First Timothy chapter 2, there's a kind of clothing that is appropriate for a woman who's godly or even a man who's godly, and there's a kind of a clothing that isn't. Now, we want to get particular. Where should that happen? The best place to address it is not the pulpit. It's in a community group. It's in a life group. It's in a one-on-one -on -one meeting with a trusted Christian, a mentor. When it comes to flirtation, those wanton looks, delaying marriage, entertainment choices, culting, cultivating friendships that encourage purity and chastity, there is an inescapable particular cultural element that requires practical wisdom, and practical wisdom is often best given and received in concrete relationship. So all I want to do here on behalf of the pastors, is to lift up the seventh commandment, highlight some of those areas. So you should be thinking here, my entertainment choices, watchfulness over my eyes, undue delay of marriage, clothes that I wear, the way that I engage with members of the opposite sex, dating, engagement, all of those issues. I want to say all of those are really important and they matter because they fall under this commandment. And then I want to exhort you, seek out the wisdom of others on these, matters, on these matters, especially the wisdom of older and wiser men and women. So like if you're a single person in here and you want to be married and it hasn't happened yet, if you're a single guy, it hasn't happened yet, you should find a wiser older man and you should ask for some counsel. You should ask a few men and discuss their advice. If you have questions about particulars, you should find someone and say, that person is wise. What would they say to me? Ask the question. And then if you're the older and the wiser person, you should listen carefully. You should pray for God's help. And then you should try to give some wisdom. So then, marriage is a comprehensive, exclusive, lifelong union of a man and a woman designed for their mutual joy and comfort, for fruitfulness and the bearing of godly children, and as a protection against immorality. And it is the fundamental building block of society. It channels some of the most powerful human desires into a, in a fruitful and God-honoring direction, which is why God binds it and weaves it with covenants and oaths and puts high walls around it and stiff penalties for violating it. Marriage is to be held in honor by all, and we ought to take practical steps in community to keep the marriage bed undefiled.
Now, so far, here's the thing. In all of what we've been talking about, we've mainly been talking about marriage as God designed it in creation. It's this universal human institution. It's, marriage is not the creation of the gospel. It's not. Marriage is not the creation of the gospel. It's not the creation of the church. The gospel does not fundamentally alter its structure. It doesn't change its definition or its earthly purposes. In all of those areas, all the gospel does is endorse and double down on what God originally did in creation. It ratifies it, echoes it, reinforces it. But it also does something more. Marriage is a great mystery and the gospel reveals that mystery. The gospel shows us that the deepest meaning of marriage is not procreation, it's not the stability of society, it's not even the mutual joy of husband and wife. The deepest meaning of marriage is a picture, is a parable of Christ's love for his bride, the church. The covenant of marriage reveals the covenant love of God. In the loving and sacrificial headship of a husband, we see a picture of Christ's love for his people. In the glad-hearted submission and honor of a wife, we see a picture of the church's honor for Christ. The church guards marriage not only for the good of children and not only for the good of society, but also as a powerful witness to the gospel. That's why we protect it. It's speaking, and we want people to be able to hear it clearly, which brings us to the table. Because marriage is not the only parable of God's love for us. Here at the Lord's table, there's another. Here we see the love of Christ who gives himself, his body, his blood. He gives himself for us and for our salvation. And in giving his body for us, he reminds us that he loves us as his own body. He nourishes us and he cherishes us. And when we eat and drink in faith, God renews that union that union that is pictured in marriage, but is so much deeper than marriage. He renews that union between us and the Lord Jesus. And so come and welcome to him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would guard marriage. We would honor it. We would keep the bed undefiled. That we would love the purposes. That we would comfort each other when... The goods that you offer are not given to us. There's real goods, children. There's a lot of pain around the subject of marriage and children. So help us to comfort one another knowing that there are real goods that are not being given or that have been lost. And then help us, Lord, as we guard and as we protect and as we enjoy this great mystery to show the supremacy of Jesus. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Invite the pastors to come. Bring the bread first. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.